0: Hello, and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. Charles Hecker, my regular co host on the Global Insight podcast, is away. I'm joined for this edition by our longtime and very regular contributor, Jonathan Wood. Jonathan, you've just arrived in the UK for the first time in many years, fresh from DC. Welcome. It's fantastic to see you.
1: And it's fantastic to be here sitting in our beautiful studio overlooking the River Thames. And we will be speaking today with an economist from our partner, Oxford Economics, about the impacts of inflation on global economic performance, on social and political stability, and on the business environment right around the world.
0: By the end of this podcast, we hope you have a much better sense of the outlook for the cost of living crisis and how sharp and deep the impact on your organisation is going to be.
2: It's fair to say that there's a combination of factors that are driving this. We're seeing very broad-based rises in inflation across the world. Initially, we saw a lot of goods price inflation during this sort of lockdown period. We've seen the sort of supply chain bottlenecks and those kinds of issues that restricted supply raising prices. I think there's been an element that those those forces have lingered a little bit longer. But also there's signs now that maybe excess demand is also a little bit of an issue. The final possibility is that we've sort of seen shifts in the inflation generation process. So maybe prices are becoming more sensitive to shifts in the economic cycle, similar things with wages. Understanding which ones are the most important is, is actually really important for understanding the speed at which inflation will fall back. And that uncertainty around what is triggering it is in itself causing, obviously, lots of headaches for policymakers around the world today.
0: That's Ben May, Director of Global Macro Research at our partners, Oxford Economics we don't know yet how quickly and effectively policy responses will have an effect in terms of reducing levels of inflation. When will we know?
2: Well, that's the million dollar question, I think. How I'd sort of characterise it at the moment is policymakers have been sort of quite unnerved. They've constantly underpredicted inflation. What they're not quite sure is, is it—is it just, you know, more shocks have come along that sort of sent inflation on a different path to what they were expecting? Or is it perhaps? There's something beneath the surface going on that, that, that they've just misunderstood that might be a little bit more benign and in, ensure that inflation lingers for that little bit longer. And really, when you're talking about central banks, the thing that they're most concerned about is not allowing sort of inflation to become entrenched at a very high level they're sort of worried about a 1970s-style situation where inflation expectations become ang- and anchored and you have these long periods of, 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 of quite high and, and potentially volatile inflation as well. And that's the sort of worst-case scenario. And I think really what we're seeing is policymakers are raising interest rates um, as a result of that to try and manage those that, that, that kind of worst-case scenario and, and and limit the chances of that happening. And really, we're at that point where I think they're of the view that if the price for, for for avoiding that kind of worst case scenario is a, a recession in the shorter term, then that's probably a price price worth paying.
1: And so, if I can just jump in there, Ben. So, the, uh, the central banks, and we've just gone through this bout of sort of coordinated global tightening, right? And on the other hand, governments have also been putting in place uh, subsidies, you know, for, for energy here in the UK. Uh, for food in in other countries, or they've been they've been uh, maybe delaying lifting some of those subsidies. So using those types of policies, uh, when you look around the world, you know which types of policies do you think are going to be most effective, and really what should companies be looking for when they're looking at a country to know what policies would make the most sense there, or if they see a policy being put in,
2: in knowing that it's going to have the desired effect on cost of living. In some senses, you can think about the policy rate hikes that central banks are doing. Really, they're quite blunt tools. They're, they're designed just to sort of limit, reduce demand. They can't do anything more sophisticated than that. And, and obviously in a world where supply chain problems are causing production to fall and then you're o- over and above trying to reduce demand, it's probably not going to be a, a, a great outcome. There's a possibility of a soft landing, but equally the risk is that, that that you do find a recession in this situation, particularly when inflation is so high and and, and central banks are quite scared of that. Obviously, in some senses, the various measures that, that governments have put in place, you could kind of argue that they're, they're quite helpful for central banks in some ways. Clearly, if you're putting a cap on the price of energy, for instance, then that will, other things equally, lead to less inflation. But at the same time, if as a central bank, you're worried because you think there's too much demand out there. By effectively subsidising these things, in in essence, putting more money in people's pockets in, in in quite an indirect way, then it's a bit like squeezing a balloon. Then you know that that money is going to flow somewhere else, and it might lead to slightly higher inflationary pressures in some of those areas. So I think one of the issues at the moment, which is creating confusion for for for, for the markets in particular, is you've got central banks doing one thing and governments moving in the opposite direction. And Obviously, the UK recently has had an even more confusing one where you've got the Bank of England trying to put the brakes on, you've got the government unveiling quite a a big fiscal stimulus, and then the the central bank responding to the surge in bond yields due to financial stability reasons, they're suddenly doing some effectively quantitative easing again because they're trying to minimize the financial stability implications of the sharp rise in bond yields. So I think all of these things are creating quite mixed and confused messages, which is adding to the uncertainty that, 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 that firms, financial markets, and, and indeed households are facing.
1: And what about this idea that the very aggressive US monetary policy, in particular, through its impacts on emerging and developing country currencies, is sort of exporting inflation? To the world now, these, these countries are facing much higher import costs for fuel, food, other
2: commodities that are priced in dollars. How big of a problem and challenge is that? My, my sense is, you, know, you look at somewhere like Europe, you know, inflation it would be very high regardless of whether the currency had depreciated. I'd more say it's just adding to the problems at this point. It perhaps increases the need for perhaps some of those central banks to raise interest rates, not only to curb domestic demand but perhaps to sort of limit the depreciation. Of the currency and, and, and stop that channel. In some senses, it, it's sort of increasing. I think the risk of those economies suffering a harder landing, in the sense that you're seeing perhaps the need for even more aggressive policy tightening to contain inflation. One question that we're very frequently
1: asked is around you know vulnerability, and when you look at the vulnerability of countries to these cross-cutting dynamics of monetary policy and fiscal policy and imported inflation, what indicators do you really pay attention to as you're looking to find out where's the next Sri Lanka, or where's the next
2: country that's going to face a lot of potential financial instability? What should we be looking at? It's really a reflection of how well individual economies can weather shocks. And generally, it's a bit easier to weather shocks if your policymakers have got a a sort of bank of credibility, let's say. But but also you've got sort of more shock absorbers there. Clearly, if your government debt level is 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 quite low and you're 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 part of your the, the solution. Is to run bigger budget deficits for instance then obviously that's much more credible and easier to do if 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 there isn't already outstanding concerns about your high high debt levels clearly once again if you've got a situation where you've got um you know the the, the private sector that's got used to very low interest rates or or, or, or things like that and have seen a big build-up of leverage then obviously if we start to see some of these shocks where interest rates are, are shooting up you know that, that that's going to be much more painful for economies where where sort of households have, have been building up debts and the like so certainly if we look at some of the advanced economies for instance we know actually things like debt to gdp ratios are much lower than they were in the build up to the global financial crisis perhaps some of those vulnerabilities are a little bit less it may well be that you know other economies the the opposite is is true they sort of weathered the global financial crisis perhaps relatively well but are now a little bit more vulnerable
0: Jonathan, you're monitoring very closely, aren't you, vulnerability from a different perspective, thinking about how the economic situation will impact the political and security environment for, for business. What, what are you tracking and what are you seeing in terms of how the macroeconomic environment is going to play into business risk and what sort of vulnerabilities are you monitoring?
1: One thing that we've seen over the last six to 12 months has been a sharp rise in the sheer frequency of what we call inflation-related unrest. So these are protests, demonstrations, strikes, those types of actions that are related specifically to high food and fuel prices. They might be led by uh, trade unions, they might be led by uh, activists, they might just be you know sort of spontaneous out, outbursts of, uh, of social discontent. But we have seen a, a very sharp rise in the frequency of those worldwide in all regions, and nota- notably, that has actually sustained, we saw a sharp increase in, t- in, in the first half of, of this year, 2022. and that has sustained even though some of those prices have started to come down uh, over the summer. So over the summer months here in the northern hemisphere, sort of by, by June we had prices for things like wheat getting back to what they were pre-Ukraine conflict. But the levels of unrest remained high. And so you know we do have companies and uh, asking us very much about, you know, how is the cost of living crisis feeding into, you know, social and political instability? And I think one of the main concerns is to say, well, on the first hand, we have an operational issue, right? Where will we see labor unrest impacting factories, logistics? And there's been a big rise in labor unrest, uh, even here in the UK, impacting, you know, transport sector, aviation, freight, few episodes in the US as well. Where will we see maybe security risks coming off the back of that as well? Yeah, especially in sort of major urban areas. I think back to the waves of food-related unrest that we had in 2007, 2008, 2010, 2011, impacting major urban areas, and, and we are seeing some of that again. And then the impact on you know broader political stability as well. Obviously, the collapse of the government in Sri Lanka this year raised concerns about which other countries might be next from that standpoint. Where do they have fragile or vulnerable governments that might lack legitimacy, that might not be ha- have the shock absorbers and the capacities to refer to, to Ben's remarks there about dealing with this cost of living crisis. So, w- you know, which places are really vulnerable from a political standpoint? In that regard, you know, we're looking at countries that have some of these structural political vulnerabilities. They might have had other shocks, climate-related disasters, for example, in Pakistan, or, you know, severe drought in parts of South, S- southern Eastern Asia over the last few months. They might have upcoming political transitions or elections. Certainly, one big area of political instability intersecting with food and fuel-related inflation is in the Sahel region of sub-Saharan Africa, in the Horn of Africa, and other, uh, you know, generally more vulnerable countries in that in that region. So, we do see those kind of a, a toxic mix of politics and inflation and social instability playing out in a number of different regions.
0: Jonathan, the. the- Inflation is having a particularly severe impact on more fragile environments, isn't it?
1: The combination of the pandemic and rising food prices have driven tens of millions of people back into food insecurity and there's, you know, widespread concern that this will drive a wave of irregular migration from these food insecure regions to, you know, other parts of the world and, and that in and of itself could could be destabilizing.
0: And clearly in developed markets as well as in underdeveloped markets and some of the countries that are, I think, most often in the news as being places to watch the likes of Yemen, perhaps, and other very fragile countries. But actually, we are talking about a much broader range of markets where there are some really worrying signs of vulnerability, aren't we?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the two countries where we at Control Risks saw the highest increase in the frequency of inflation-related protests over the summer were Germany and the US. So two you know, very advanced economies, not nearly as fragile as some of those other, uh, other countries that you mentioned, but where we, we have had a significant increase in social protest around inflation-related issues. And I think that you know, reflects a perceived move away from this very low inflation environment perhaps, and, and that these pressures are just hitting uh, advanced countries and emerging markets and developing countries alike.
2: I think one of the issues actually is there's not really a neat, costless way to to get around this. So, you know, you you, you think about those protests. Say one option would be more subsidies on, you know, food or, or or fuel or whatever. The risk is that that simply leads to you know more government debt with bond yields rising. That there, there, there's increased concerns about whether you know those governments can afford that, and it it, it risks some of those economies sort of being. Banded in with Sri Lanka or other or other countries that are that they're obviously going through really difficult times. Whilst obviously, if you know you respond to that by trying to squeeze inflation out of the economy by raising interest rates, for instance, then that's clearly going to lead to even more economic pain for a lot of these people who are not only seeing high prices, but but, but also seeing perhaps their their incomes falling or or, or losing their jobs or, or, or whatever. So these are really difficult things to manage, and and you know it, it's not like there's there's a one nice, neat solution that everyone just needs to follow that playbook, all have their risks and problems. I think that's a
1: fantastic point because if we think back to some of the other waves of emerging market social protest, a lot of that was related to sort of backsliding on basic welfare gains and households that had moved into these middle classes in Latin America or in parts of Asia. And Africa, seeing those gains eroded by global recession or high, you know, high fuel prices. are you thinking back prices, to, Jonathan,
0: the late 2008?
1: Uh, well, even, even subsequent to that, in fact, the sort of 2014, 2015 mm-hmm, period mm-hmm. when we had a big wave of protests that were driven- post man- Arab Spring. Yeah, mainly by middle class, uh, middle class movements, you know, professionals yeah. who had achieved this middle class lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And then we're seeing it sort of get clawed back from them because of economic- underperformance and Latin America being a kind of great uh, a, a case study for where this was playing out and we have certainly seen even before the recent run up in in global prices efforts to raise tra- you know transport ticket costs in Chile food and fuel prices in in Colombia and, and Peru also sparking very significant protests sort of late 2019 into 2020 so even before these recent prices you know these are these are uh, systems that are particularly vulnerable to anything that that really impacts prices, so I, I completely agree with Ben in the sense that if on the one hand we're dealing with a sort of cost of living crisis at the moment, causing social and political instability, we might very well in the future, depending on the policy responses, be dealing with a sort of recession and economic backsliding problem that that produces similar outcomes for business in terms of protests, operational impacts labor activism, political instability.
0: And I wonder how demographics will play into it as well, because we have generations of people who are experiencing very high inflation, high interest rates, much more difficult economic circumstances than we've seen for for years, for the first time in their adult lives.
1: I mean, this is something I've, I'd be very interested to hear Ben's thoughts on, because I guess there's this this question, right? Are we at a point where this long-term, you know, sort of decades-long period of declining inflation has reversed or are we still in a do you see us spend going back to a more global economic environment of relatively lower inflation after sort of transitory high inflation period
2: well we're certainly uh, Oxford economics reasonably sanguine on the outlook for inflation sort of beyond the very short term there's certainly been lots of talks about deglobalization demographics lots of other factors that or, or return to the 1970s all these sorts of factors that that might mean that inflation kind of lingers at sort of 5% or whatever for, for a prolonged period. As I've already talked about, it's certainly a risk. It's something that I think central banks are alert to. But for me, at least, it's not the most likely scenario. I think we're much more likely to see sort of recessions in the near term, tempering inflation in addition to the sort of fallback in commodity prices that you've talked about, easing supply chain issues, which which perhaps will help to push down prices of some goods. All of that we, we think will lead to quite big fallbacks, in inflation that's good news but equally we may well be in a situation where it's still a little bit different to the, the the 2010s where we've got perhaps slightly higher inflation you know inflation being above target sometimes as well as below it and perhaps we're in a situation where policy rates are no longer trapped at, at, at zero or even lower now to my mind at least that that's a good thing you know as long as we don't swing you, know, we, you sort of swing back to the Early 2000, late 1990s, where we sort of saw low, but still relatively stable inflation, but higher than we saw in the 2010s and, and slightly high, higher policy rates. If we go back to something like that, that's a pretty good thing. As long as we don't go through that back into the 1980s or 1970s, but I'm not seeing that as a particularly big risk at the moment. The key thing though is still, I'm, you know, someone in my mid forties who's had a, you know, mortgage for, I don't know, 15 years or something i don't think i've ever really had a period where my mortgage has gone up over that period and i think there is going to be a lot of people whether that's households with mortgages who have sort of almost assumed that their, that those mortgage rates will remain very low and have perhaps maybe a little bit overgeared as a result of that you know similar things you can make case for businesses other things and even that move to a slightly higher interest rate outlook could be quite painful and clearly with the moves that we've seen in things like mortgage rates in in the US and UK recently, that could be a big shot across the bowels for some of those people. Maybe even if mortgage rates fall back down quite sharply next year to something much closer to what we've been used to over the last few years. Yeah, that's by no means inevitable. But even if we do, I suspect there might be a sort of once bitten, twice shy attitude amongst lots of people. So you could see this having kind of quite big spillovers potentially to things like house prices, for instance, as a result of that, as people are perhaps willing to take out less big mortgages than they were before, irrespective of uh, you know their, their sort of financial situation. Even in a kind of benign situation, there's the scope for pockets of pain and vulnerability and and and, and sort of bit of volatility, let's say. Awareness of political, country, and economic risks underpin your organization's
1: ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer-term strategic, analytical, and forecasting resources, we can respond to your requirements face-to-face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes thinking back to of course to the global financial crisis or the great financial crisis i mean do you see any of those pockets of in volatility and risk being really systemic i mean do we even know where some of the risks lie or is there is there too much complexity and opacity in the system to really understand some of the interdependencies because i gather that as t- to your point about mortgages you know there are, that was one of the dynamics here here in the uk right that the rise in rates had exposed a sort of potential systemic risk that they had that the Bank of England had to intervene very quickly to quash. And is that something that you're concerned about going
2: forward in, in other contexts? So I think with the sort of Bank of England stepping in, it, it it was partly due to this sort of issue with these investment strategies that some of the pension funds had. And effectively they were sort of making losses because of the rise in bond yields, which was forcing them to sort of sell assets to, to sort of fund margin calls. And some of those assets that they were selling, because they're quite liquid, were, were government bonds. Which was pushing up the yields further and sort of creating this vicious cycle seemed like quite a specific example, perhaps fairly unique to the UK. But I think what it does signify is probably out there, there's lots of various strategies and sort of things that are going on in all sorts of places in in different markets where, where people have got used to these very low government bond yields, policy rates, and have perhaps either by accident or by, by design, Sort of geared up to those, and sort of taken wittingly or unwittingly quite leveraged sort of bets on on those things. And clearly, if we do start seeing rises in 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 bond yields, policy rates that are, that that they're very substantial over a very short period of time, that can lead to a lot of pain for people who are on the wrong side of those those bets. That's the sort of nature of the beast. I think we always see that. I don't. I think it's pretty pretty difficult to avoid those. It's much easier to to sort of see. Where the problems are with the benefit of hindsight than than perhaps seeing them sometimes in real time. I don't think many people were seriously putting a lot of weight on, you know, mortgage rates in the UK going to be at sort of five odd percent at this point, you know, a year ago, maybe not even six months ago. But I think when you do have these big swings and big shifts in behavior or, or rises in interest rates or, or whatever these things are, there's often people get caught out. And really it's about limiting that.
0: You're right. It is hard to make predictions sometimes. And maybe even six months ago, it would have been hard to imagine mortgage rates here in the UK being as high as they are and as they're heading. But I am nonetheless going to ask you both um to identify one to two markets which you think we need to have a particularly close eye on over the next six to twelve months. I'll
2: let Ben go first. <laughs> uh well it depends a little bit what you mean by markets. I mean, I, th- I think one, you know, really obvious concern, which you already touched on is, is the housing market in, in, in certainly lots of places. Certainly if people are sort of scaling back their mortgages due to affordability reasons related to rises in mortgage rates, it's certainly possible that we see, you could see quite big house price falls if mortgage rates persist, which could be the, the, the sort of impetus for a, a further leg down in terms of recessions and seeing bigger recessions than perhaps at the moment, we would be expecting. That's certainly a big risk. If you're sort of thinking about Europe more generally and the surge in gas prices, which we'll not really talk too much about, I think that's created huge uncertainties about, I think, energy security and also that price of that energy. So I think that could be a real issue for European industry. If you're a, a, an intensive energy user, are you now at the point in Europe where you think really I need to be closing down my plants and moving them to somewhere else where the price of energy is likely to be a bit lower um, and a bit more stable. I think those, those are probably two risks that I would identify.
0: I can certainly confirm that that exact issue, that exact concern around how resilient is my manufacturing operation, how resilient is my supply chain in the context of energy price rises and also prospective shortages and potentially blackouts here in Europe over the over the winter months that 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 is driving a lot of our business at the moment helping companies work out what they need to do pretty urgently to make sure that they can carry on operating. Jonathan, your turn.
1: I agree Europe will be absolutely critical because we will find out in the next few months just how well it's coping with the looming energy Crisis and, and whether or not the, the policies, both the, the demand side policies and the supply side policies are, are actually working. And that will include, of course, the, the ultimate fate of any further sanctions targeting Russia's energy sector. I think we ought to pay very close attention to the US just in, because we're entering a, a very contentious political cycle where economic factors and inflation and cost of living in particular are the main political issue. The sort of success of policymakers in bringing down inflation in the U.S. will have both significant domestic political impacts, but also because of the U.S.'s sort of global economic role, probably global economic impacts as well. I think as well, China also going through its own very significant political transition, where it's a dynamic zero COVID policy, as well as its exposure to global food and energy prices on on the back of a truly historic drought, which has impacted food production, which has impacted energy production nationwide. We will need to see whether China can still function as a major driver of the global economic system in the next few months, or or if it winds up being being bowed by by those pressures.
0: It seems to me that there are a few words that characterise particularly this moment in time that we're, that we're living through. Uncertainty, recession, confused messages. Ben gave us a, a broadly optimistic view, actually, to be fair, around where we're going on inflation, longer term, bigger picture. But nonetheless, clearly some very, very difficult times to navigate through. Jonathan, what can business do to cope with the political insecurity implications of the macroeconomic situation?
1: So one way that we are helping clients at the moment is understanding uh, which countries or which jurisdictions have the most exposure and vulnerability to some of these trends and where does that exposure overlap with maybe underlying fragility, you know, social or political fragility. Uh, and so we we do have we are helping companies look at their footprint operationally and try to figure out those places that might be most exposed to a rise in social protest or a rise in labor activism or anything that could disrupt operations. Another thing that clients are asking us and and, and where we are help, trying to help them understand is uh, you know which context or which supply chains have specific exposures to things like rising fuel prices or uh, d- disruptions to fuel and power supply. How can they build resilience into those Systems and into those supply chains is it by finding alternate suppliers, by changing their long-term strategy to invest in you know different different manufacturing locations, and so we do have a lot of companies that are beginning to look at that side of things as well. Not necessarily anticipating that this inflationary surge will last forever, but realizing that they do have some vulnerabilities there and looking for ways to to mitigate those. And this has th- this has certainly provided impetus for that within many of our clients to think about those questions both at an immediate operational perspective but also at a longer term strategic perspective
0: ben are you seeing that too are your clients asking you both near-term tactical questions and also are they being prompted to think and ask more strategic questions of you as economists as well
2: well i think really the you know the the, the key the key thing is are you know, is this a sort of period a temporary period of volatility let's say Where we're seeing inflation shoot up, it's going to shoot back down and we're sort of going to go back to perhaps something close to the pre pandemic norms. Or is this the sort of part of a bigger sea change? I think we're still of the view that, that fundamentally we're in, we're probably going back to a world of sort of fairly low growth, fairly low interest rates, fairly low inflation. So it won't look too different from the 2010s in many respects. But it may well be slightly different, as I was saying, slightly higher inflation, slightly higher policy rates, um, a lot higher government debt, for instance, as a result of the pandemic. So there will be some differences within that, and I think what has become clear is that perhaps that transition back to that period could last. You know, we could be seeing you know another couple of years of uncertainty and, and instability, and obviously in the interim, that that in itself could you know have important repercussions for exactly how things look a little bit further down the line.
0: We haven't touched much on geopolitics in this discussion. There is clearly a geopolitical angle to what we're talking about. We were talking in a in, a, in an earlier episode of this podcast about the weaponization of energy. It's gas prices that people are really feeling pain from, particularly here in Europe. Here in the UK, I think there's an extraordinary increase in the number of people just since the beginning of the year, about 57%, who are now struggling to have enough to eat. and That is partly because they are having to spend so much more of their uh, household income on on energy. Ben, give us some insight into how gas prices are feeding into inflation, but also the broader macroeconomic outlook.
2: Exactly how this plays out is really hard to know. This is such a big problem that governments are having to step in and intervene. It's almost a bit like during the global financial crisis, when central banks stepped in to sort of support financial markets, we're almost sort of seeing something akin to that, I think, at the moment. So there's a lot of uncertainty about how high prices will go as a result of the energy shock. And as a result, how weak activity will be. And part of it will depend on the, the scale of the, the, the government interventions. I think what we do know is that households and industry are going to be paying a lot more for their energy than they 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 thought was likely a few months ago. Whether that's crazy amounts or just eye-wateringly high is 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 a kind of another matter. What we are going to see is recession in in Europe, which could be made even worse if we're at the stage where rationing. Has to take place, and you're sort of seeing certain industries being effectively shut down because they're, they're consuming too much power. We're certainly expecting recessions in Europe now for, for for most of Europe for for those kinds of reasons, and there'll be certainly bigger recessions than we're anticipating in places like the U.S., um, for instance, where it's perhaps more just down to the rising in, in 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 policy rates and high high inflation, which isn't perhaps quite so so acute. So, really difficult times of Europe, even if. The recession isn't too bad in Europe. It will probably leave governments saddled with quite a bit of extra debt.
0: Ben, always nice to speak to someone from Oxford Economics. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Jonathan, absolute pleasure to be sitting here in person with you in the office, the studio here in London. Thank you so much.
1: It is a distinct pleasure.
2: That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can
2: follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight
1: is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now.
0: And goodbye from me.